so I, I can't be a good leader. I think the research is becoming clearer and clearer that actually anyone can be a more effective leader. So whether you're in a leadership role now or whether you aspire to be in one, or even if you're not even thinking about being in one, you don't think you have the skills to be one. Anyone can be an effective leader, but it really starts with understanding what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and how to, how to adapt to particular circumstances. That's Dr. Ryan Sherman, a psychologist and chief science officer at Hogan Assessment Systems. Ryan is responsible for Hogan's groundbreaking research into well-validated personality assessments for the workplace. He's also the recipient of a National Science Foundation grant and the host of his own podcast with Blake Loop, The Science of Personality, which explores trends in personality psychology. Today, With tough macroeconomic times and generational changes uh, in terms of what's wanted in leadership and teams, I can't think of a better topic to explore than the history of leadership, how we went off course and are trying to get back on course, and what sort of anthropology and sociology and social psychology and personality psychology can tell us. So Ryan, I thought I would uh, first start out by asking, what are some of the common misconceptions about leadership and team effectiveness that sort of uh, permeate today's popular culture on those topics? Yeah, well, first, Jason, I want to say thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Always great to, to chat with you, especially about these kinds of topics. In thinking about common misconceptions today with leadership, it's actually really interesting. I... I yeah, it was sort of on the top of my mind here is some work that I've been uh, messing around with, I guess, with chat GPT. I mean, it's probably relatively new technology. Probably some of the, your younger listeners are like, oh, this old guy, he's just now learning about this kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, there, there's this really cool AI software called chat GPT where you can basically tell it anything. You can type in anything and it will tell you, you know, it'll try to answer questions, right? You can say, what are the, the uh, I actually did this one. What are the, the political, social, economic causes and consequences of the U.S. Civil War. And it gives a really nice, like, sort of summary and essay. And it's actually, you read it and you go, wow, this could easily be written by a human. So I've done the same kind of thing on leadership. Like, well, you know, it's, what, are, what are the characteristics of effective leaders? And it gives, you know, the kind of common popular things that we would see with, with effective leaders. But a lot of it has to do with things like charm and charisma and having a vision and and being persuasive and convincing other people to to follow you and it can be somewhat problematic because while those are characteristics that are related to getting into leadership positions they're not necessarily characteristics that are related to building high performing teams and and at Hogan when we talk about leadership that's the way we grade leadership that's the way we keep score for leadership it's Did you build a high-performing team? Did you maintain that high-performing team over a long period of time? Not, did you get into a leadership position? And that's by far the most common misconception is that we equate leadership with being in leadership positions, which it it really isn't. That's really interesting because from the perspective of someone's a coach, you know, I 
often find myself going into organizations, whether it's Fortune 500 or whether it's a federal government agency or state or local one. And I often tell people that it's my job here to make your effective leaders emergent, to get them the attention that will get them into the positions where they could really excel and benefit the organization. And my other job is to make your emergent leaders, the ones that are catching your attention by dancing on the table, actually effective at doing their jobs. So that's kind of an interesting, I think for me, an interesting way of looking at one of the biggest leadership challenges is that we reward and promote what may not always be the most effective form of leadership. Is that fair from your perspective, Ryan? Oh, it, it's totally the case, right? So, uh, and you see it all of the time where, you know, who do we put into leadership positions? Well, in part, we put in people into leadership positions that we just like. We go, wow, that person seems fun. That person seems enjoyable. That person seems rewarding. I like that person. Um, that they're they're nice to me. They do favors for me. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons that that people get into leadership positions, almost none of which have to do with the the performance of the team that they're managing. In fact, one of the things that we see all the time when we're talking about like top level executive positions that that people get into those positions mostly because the board likes them. Um, that means the that they do things that the board likes. Maybe that's um, maybe that's uh, getting a, a good returns. Uh, maybe that's keeping employee wages low, but they don't necessarily do things that their teams like, that their teams enjoy. And of course, there's there's a difficult balance, I think, for leaders in that position, right? On the one hand, you do have a responsibility to the company to make sure the company is, is uh, functioning in a way that, that it can maintain itself and continue, continue going, continue to keep people employed. But on the other hand, you have a responsibility to your team to make sure they're treated well, to make sure that they're treated fairly. Uh, but too often, we ignore that question of how their team feels. We don't even bother to ask what this person was like as a leader. We just go, I like this person. This person achieves my goals as a board member or as a shareholder. And that's who I want to be the leader. Forgetting about how anybody else feels about them. Right. I One of the things that really struck me and attracted me to Hogan Assessments, first, first as a coach, it was very attractive to me. because it was such a powerful tool with my clients. But along the way, as a leader of a company, one of the things that I realized was, at times, my own biases got in the way of who I hired. So part of, you know, and I took all sorts of steps, right? I, uh, when resumes were put in front of me, I had our HR department black out the name, so I couldn't see the name or I couldn't see the gender, But one of the things that I realized over time, I was hiring many me's. And to be successful, I didn't need many me's, people who had similar backgrounds as me or reminded me of me. I actually needed people who were quite different. And having an assessment tool, I think, to really look at, you know, candidates or even clients and coaching in a real unbiased way was really, really helpful for us as a company. Could you talk a little bit about the the tool itself and how it can be used and, you know, sort of in the universe of it as an assessment tool versus some of the pitfalls uh, of other assessment tools? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a few things uh, sort of tied up in there, Jason. One of the things is that, of course, you know, we all like ourselves or well, for the most part, most people tend to like themselves, even if there are certain things about ourselves that we don't like. For the most part, most people like ourselves. It's, it's, in, it's in psychology. It's what we refer to as being egocentric, right? So we tend to 
think that the way we think, the way we do things is the right way to do things. And so it's no surprise that often we end up trying to hire people who are, who are like ourselves. And I think the value of a personality assessment tool is in that not only do we get to understand ourselves better, but we also get to understand that there's other people who are the opposite of us, who are different from us in certain ways. And in terms of our tools, uh, we do that in three ways. One of the ways is is, is what we call the inside, which is, um, I, I think, if I had to pick a favorite, it's actually maybe my favorite, which is our motives, values, and preferences inventory. And this really tells you what drives that person, what motivates that person, what kinds of things they're going to be interested in. And that's one of those places where you can really find out that, wow, there's other people who think very differently from me. I'll just give one example. I was working with a uh, a young woman once who was uh, in, a, in a career that was paying fairly well, particularly given her, her age out of college. And um, she scored very, very low on commerce and was just miserable in this job. And uh, she took she, commerce as one of these scales on this assessment. And uh, she scored very high on altruism, very high on hedonism, which was much more like, you know, wanting to help people, wanting to have more free time. And I basically said, well, I don't think you really like this sales job that's paying you quite well. I think you want to do something else. And she switched jobs and got she got into a startup company that actually made um, uh, sort of plant-based uh, cleaning supplies oh, or, wow. or I guess they, I guess I guess better way to say them was they're sort of non-chemical, right? They're non-toxic, non-dangerous cleaning supplies. Like you could drink them. <laughs> they weren't tasty, but you could and you wouldn't die, right? So um, she, she started working for this company, making way less money, but was so much happier because she felt that this was a really rewarding part, right? So because her motives and her values really matched with what she was doing. And it was the, the shocker was that, you know, her father, who scored very high on commerce, couldn't understand mm. why she would give up that much money. And that's the real key with a good, with a good assessment is that you not only do you find out about yourself but you find out that there's other people who think differently from you. And that's a really important part. You go, wow, I never thought that other people would think about money like that. And, and like that is whatever the opposite of you is. Yeah. So, that, so that's one of our assessments is that, 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 that inside. We also have one that measures the bright side or who you are when you're putting your best foot forward. That's, that's the HPI or the Hogan Personality Inventory. Sort of a big five like measure. It's, it's the, the you that your friends know when, when your friends see you most of the time. That's who, who they would recognize. And then our sort of deeper measure is, is called the HDS or the Hogan Development Survey. That's your dark side. That's the kinds of things that will get you into trouble. These are the kinds of things that uh, lead to managerial failure and career derailment. And I think to, to, to get a long way around to answering your question, Jason, is that the unique value proposition here is when you get all three of those together, you really get a deep understanding of what drives the person, who they are at their best, and who they are at their worst. And, and again, that can be you. That can be somebody else. You understand that other people act in a, in a very different way from you. Other people are motivated by very different things from you. Uh, and I think when you put them all together, you really get a total understanding of who you are uh, or who that person is and um, what, what that person needs to do or what you need to do in, in many cases to, to sort of round yourself out a little more, to avoid certain biases and blind spots that you might have. Yep. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about uh, that concept or approach, there's a lot of focus right now on, you know, what they call positive psychology, focusing on 
your strengths. But one of one of the things I really love about what you're saying is it's the idea of we start with the environment that the person wants to create and what they're going to value and what's going to drive them. And then you get a chance to look at sort of their everyday strengths um, that are going to get them there. And then some of the roadblocks that are in the way, you know, is that a unique approach right now in, in leadership development and assessments or, you know, I, I, cause I, I sort of get the feeling that we're headed as a industry in the opposite direction, which presents a lot of risks. You know, most people know what their strengths are or have some idea of what their strengths are. But mm-hmm. I find that people often don't know their values and they definitely don't know their derailers. Yeah, I think that's totally uh, one of the big parts, right? So uh, th- there is a lot about a lot of ideas out there about, oh, just focus on your strengths. I mean, I think that it might even be the title of a book or some several articles, right? That are just, you know, focus on what you do best. Look, uh, one of the most popular, the most popular personality assessment in existence is something called the Myers-Briggs type inventory. And basically, it is the original strengths-based measure. They actually eliminated the sort of uh, one uh, somewhat negative uh, personality trait from the big five, which is uh, neuroticism, and they just measured the other four, and then they just talk about your strengths. I mean, that's what the MBTI is all about. It was sort of the original strengths-based measure. And I mean, there's a, a real logical problem here. If you just focus on your strength, you are, you're going to miss you're going to miss a whole lot of things that, that, that you need to work on to get better. I mean, the, the analogy I always use is the tennis analogy, right? If you say, you know, I mean, it would be absurd for a tennis coach to just say, only hit forehands. Don't, you know, your backhand's weak. <laughs> you know, just don't, don't practice your backhand. Only practice your forehand. Like that would be crazy, right? Yep. Because eventually people are going to exploit your backhand, right? And, and that's what's going to happen. And I think the same thing can happen in, in, in our own careers, right? At some point, not that somebody will intentionally exploit those personality weaknesses that, that you might have, but you might, uh, you're going to run into trouble with those at some point, right? Even if somebody's not intentionally exploiting it, you'll run into a situation where, boy, if you had that sort of rounded out capability or you had the recognition that this area was a weakness for you, you could come up with a strategy for overcoming it. And without that recognition, without that awareness, you don't have that. And that's a real problem with the strengths-based measures that just sort of say, focus on your strengths, ignore your weaknesses, is that they, they leave you open to, to uh, well, just making it really difficult for you to develop and grow as a person. Yeah, it's sort of baked into the definition, right? We call it personal development. We call it professional development. We call it leadership development. And it's all about getting self-awareness internalizing some of those changes so we can, you know, make positive changes. And I understand the advantage of at least keeping a positive mindset, but I think the whole point of development is growth and the way that we grow is really understanding the areas we need to do there. That's super interesting. Thanks for that summary of the assessments. I was going to ask another question. So I'm wondering where might we be off in terms of what it takes to build a good leader and effective teams. You know, how did we sort of historically end up so far off course um, in terms of our idea of what that is? Well, so the, the sort of history of leadership, as, as uh, Bob Hogan and I tell it, really, uh, to, to me, really kicks off in what's called the Neolithic Revolution. Some places we'll call it the uh, agriculture revolution, although that it gets confusing because there's actually sort of two agriculture revolutions. But the Neolithic revolution was sometime about maybe two or three thousand BC, where 
instead of being living pe- people living in sort of nomadic tribes that were sort of gathering and following um fo- following the the herds around for for food and sustenance and these these would be really relatively small tribes of around 100 people all of a sudden it was sort of like well wait a minute if we just you know farm this crop whatever the crop was whether it was rice or some variant of corn we we don't have to move so much we can just stay here and th- the key difference there is that when you're picking up and moving around all the time it was really hard for any individual to accumulate lots of stuff and accumulate lots of power. Whereas when you talk about land, uh, all of a sudden having value, right? The land that the crops are growing on, if you can accumulate, if you can acquire that land, suddenly that has a lot of value. Mm. If you can hoard the food that comes from that land, you can have you can have a lot of power, a lot of influence. Um, and so that's what started happening was that basically dictators would take the land and say, okay, well, this is mine and, and all this is mine and you work for me. Right. And so all of the people would start working for 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 this person to, to create food. And of course, the person would would feed them. But it was essentially the the, the beginnings of, of slavery. And that sort of leadership style is, is what it, what evolved out of that, that sort of dictatorship leadership. style. Whereas in the in the sort of gathering, the, the herds that were sort of following uh, or sorry, the, the pre Neolithic era where people are, are following herds around, there was no real. Uh, leader in that sense. It was much more of a democratic uh, style of leadership. In fact, many people think the Greeks invented democracy. It turns out that anthropology tells us that actually sort of democratic leadership style sort of pre-baked into um, human societies pre the Neolithic revolution. So with the advent of agriculture and and, and large-scale farming, at least at large scale in that sense, uh, that that created a, a totally different style of leadership model, and that leadership model has pretty much perpetuated through to today, through the Industrial Revolution, uh, through the Middle Ages, through pretty, I mean, even in, in today's modern corporations, right, that, that that leadership style of some group of owners who have, you know, most of the power and, and control of most of the resources get to get to make all of the decisions, and, and it's not really a democratically elected style. Now, of course, there are some governments that are much more democratically elected, and and those are sort of rarities, I think, in, in the modern, mm-hmm. in the modern world. <laughs> but um, but for the most part, the, the sort of the operation of any business is is much more uh, in that style, and that really hasn't changed. And and I think that that's that's part of what's led to um, some of the difficulties of of modern leadership problems. Yeah, and it makes uh, complete sense to me. You think of a lot of issues like CEO compensation. They're almost like warlords to some extent, right? You know, they're there getting very wealthy. Uh, Folks are making a lot less than them. And often they're focused on keeping them in. And it reminds me of this great story that I once heard about castles. And I had always thought that castle walls were built originally to keep the invaders out. But I had heard that many castle walls were actually built to keep the people who had to work on um, agriculture in. And I remember this example I saw of this old German castle, and it had a wall around it. But then it had all these beautiful fields in front of it, and there was a second wall. And that was a wall to keep the people in, while there was another wall to protect the leaders from, from the people. And you know, one of the things that just surprises me about that continuing is the information technology revolution. You know, you get into the industrial revolution and information technology, 
And you would think logically workers would be empowered because they would have unique skills. They would be able to travel to other employers. You know, we don't, we didn't, we don't have slavery or indentured servitude. So it's kind of amazing to me that that approach to leadership has persisted despite that change. Do you have any idea why that might have happened? Well, I would say that there's uh, a couple of advantages of that approach. One advantage is sort of you know the the efficiency of of you know one person in charge or a very small group of people in charge who who make the decisions. And of course, the other advantage is you know one one person or a small group of people who who amass all the wealth, right? So it's an advantage for them. <laughs> so that's a main reason uh, that that it exists. You know, um, Bob Hogan and I have uh, recently taken up a habit of. Uh, whatever city or town we're in, you know, asking, um, the local person, you know, you go to the coffee shop and you say, Hey, who runs this town? And, uh, <laughs> and it's quite it's, there is someone, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, there's, there's a quite interesting reaction, right? Because, uh, most people first should look at you like very strange, like what, what on earth are you kind of question are you asking? And I get the sense that most people really don't think about things that way or just don't really have any uh, any sense that that often that's what's going on and now somebody might mention the mayor or something like that but i think um if you really look deeply at, at how cities towns counties uh, are are run there's often somebody who's very powerful a very powerful business person who probably has a lot of influence over who's the mayor or who's uh the, the county seat or who are the local judges and things like that. And, you know, uh, do they run the town the way uh, a, a, a king might've run a kingdom in, in the middle ages? No, but uh, in, in, to some extent they, they are still running the town yeah, no. right? Uh, in, in the same way. Yeah. And there are lots of, I think lots of examples of that. Some that are obvious. Uh, I remember going out to Wisconsin to the town of Kohler, you know, the Kohler, folks make yes, faucets yeah, yeah. and the um, the uh, the uh, toilets and other things like that. It was very striking to me that how much control the company had over the schools. They donated the money for the schools, so the schools marched in their order. The downtown center that was a shopping center, they owned part of that. I mean, they pretty much owned the town. And that was a very obvious example. But when working as a reporter in different places – there was always inevitably some business interests that owned uh, things. And what you're saying reminds me of something from earlier in my career. When I was a reporter at the New York Times, you know, back in the late 1990s and 2000s, uh, Jack Welsh was sort of seen as the model of leadership. And mm -hmm. I remember I had this one assignment where I had to calculate what Jack Welsh made per minute and compare it to the average per minute, I mean, per year salary of a GE right. employee. And, you know, at the time he had about a $4 million salary, $13 million bonus, $2 million in perks like drivers. They were paying for his uh, apartment in Manhattan. And I think I calculated essentially they were paying him like $63,000 a week, which was more than the average GE employee's annual salary. And, you know, he took a, he took a, $26 billion company um, in 1980 to by the late 1990s to $130 billion company. So he certainly, I guess, deserves some credit for that. But he also, you know, in a lot of ways, in looking back at it, you know, he had that nickname Neutron Jack for slashing mm -hmm. tens of thousands of jobs. 
And in a lot of ways, the challenges that GE has had over the last decade, you could look at it as, oh, Jack Welsh left. But I actually think it's seeded in what Jack Welsh did. And so I, I, I just wonder, you know, should we view the Jack Welshes of the world as the good leader or or is there some other model of great leadership that you can think of? Well, I mean, there, there's a couple of things there. Uh, I mean, I think when we look back at, at uh, Jack Welch's time at, uh, at, at GE, sort of, you know, with, with a, the sort of time after in, in mind, and we see what happened there with GE Capital and how essentially uh, they were really cooking the books in a way to make it look like GE was much more valuable. I mean, so uh, just a few years ago, it was, I think, GE and Dutch Royal Shell and one other company were the only companies that had been in the like global top 100 list like ever since its inception. And of course, GE fell out after the, the Jack Welch uh, sort of running of things. I mean, again, he was no longer in position, but I think people would say that, uh, that he set it up in a situation where that that was the inevitable conclusion, right? That their actual core business wasn't generating revenue. The only revenue they were generating was through GE Capital, which was making it look like their core business was generating revenue when, when it really wasn't. So there, there's that problem. But to your point about the CEO compensation, uh, gosh, you, you know, you gave off those numbers and, and I think, oh, wow, relative to today's standards, that sounds pretty minimal. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's only gotten worse. I think based just roughly you were uh, essentially it was about 50 times or so. That's what he was making about 50 times what the typical employee was today in, in major companies. The CEO makes 100 times or more what the average uh, employee makes, which is, you know, which is really crazy. And prior to this, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, CEOs tended to make maybe about 10 times what the typical employee made. Ah. It's just really hard for me to imagine yeah. that the CEO is worth um, 100 times the average employee. Of course, a lot of that is in stock options and other kinds of things. But, but that actually brings us to the point about what's happened with corporate leadership in the 1980s and through the 1990s. Basically, activist investors decided, hey, we, we need to, to get we want a better return on our investment. We want to be you know, we're, we're in this to, to make make a bunch of money. So what we need you to do is give us good stock returns. I've put a, invested a lot of money in this company and I want to make a big return for myself. So you need to give us good stock returns. And so one way that they did that is they, they tied CEO compensation to stock returns, which basically means that the, that the CEO is really only motivated to 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 bump up that stock price, which is something that Jack Welch did really well. Now, of course, we learned in retrospect that uh, that that was sort of artificially inflated. The core business of GE was actually losing money for many many years, and we see that with a whole bunch of other scandals we've seen today: Enron and uh, uh, the, this uh, FTX mm -hmm. uh, crypto company as well. So a lot of that is, is really driven around the same thing. It's the idea that these investors want to get a good return on their investment. The way you do that is by when the stock price goes up, they're feeling very happy and they've got a good return. And if you're, they, they often tie CEO compensation to how big is the return, not to, you know, what's the core business? Are we actually operationally efficient? Um, are employees happy? Are our products high quality? Like that's that's what it used to be the CEO's job, right? The CEO's job used to be to make sure that's what was happening. But now their main job seems to be driving up the stock price, which is 
not always aligned with making sure the core business is functioning well. Right. And it's kind of like that idea that the short-term quarterly focus actually rewards bad leadership, right? Cutting people, you know, playing around the edges of accounting and other things like that at the expense of, you know, what we traditionally consider good leadership which really is looking at the long run, right? The sustainability of the company beyond. Um, And I, you know, I remember like when you look over the arc of a company trying to meet its strategic objectives, I know the research sort of tells us that organizational effectiveness is really tied to employee engagement and employee engagement is really driven or the most correlated factor is how people feel about their leaders you know, and that followers want integrity, they want humility, they want good judgment, they want competence, and they want ambition for the collective success of the team out of their leaders. Yet sort of I wonder, how is it that so many successful leaders struggle with those things? And from a personality perspective, are there there certain risks that create some of those challenges from your perspective? Yeah, so we, we've actually been doing some relatively recent research around this topic of leadership effectiveness because there is a tremendous amount of data on getting into leadership position, what we call leadership emergence and, and personality. And it shows that basically uh, being more extroverted, being more conscientious, being more agreeable, being more open to experience and, and being less neurotic uh, or more emotionally stable is is all positively correlated with getting into leadership positions. Like there's really robust evidence for for personality and its association with leaders like getting into leadership positions. But the relationship between personality and leadership effectiveness is not so clear. There's not really I can't be like, "Oh, extroversion, that's what it takes to be an effective leader." It actually seems to be and this is some relatively recent research that, I mean, I'm actually sort of breaking it here on your podcast, Jason, because I haven't really talked with very many people about it. Go this. for it. <laughs> um, it it's, it's that it's actually uh, the ability to adapt to circumstances, which isn't just one combination of personality traits. It's actually the ability to recognize what your strengths are, to recognize what your personality characteristics are and the way you tend to want to solve problems, the way that you tend to want to do things and to recognize situations where you need to go against your natural inclinations, right? Ah. So let's, let's say you're naturally extroverted and sociable and really good at building networking and building connections. In many cases that, that really works well, but there's other times where that's not the right solution to the problem. Right. Or let's say you're, you're really uh, good at detail orientation. And, and in many cases, that's what you need is you need somebody who can focus on the details and get all the details exactly right. But in other times, you need someone who can step back and go, wait a minute, we need to focus on the bigger picture here. And so what you need to do as a leader, what, we, what we're finding is that the most effective leaders are the ones who can recognize those situations where they have to go against their natural inclinations. And that's what really makes someone effective. So you mentioned a whole bunch of things, having integrity, having humility, uh, having competence and good judgment and all of those kinds of things. And that's what we're finding is that leaders who can do that are showing all those things. They're showing humility. One part of the humility is just to recognize that my way of doing things isn't always the best way, right? That's part of what it means to be humble. And it's really pretty, first I was dismayed. I'll say this when I first (laughs) found it. I was like, 
oh no, personality, like it's not just about being ambitious or, or just being inquisitive that's, that makes you an effective leader. There, there's just the, the relationship between personality and leadership effectiveness is close to zero. But then all of a sudden it hit me that that's not what's going on at all. What's going on is that there's no one formula for being an effective leader. What it really requires, or here, here's the way I really started thinking about it. It's actually a much more empowering message than I thought. That anybody can be an effective leader if you recognize your own strengths, your own biases, your own limitations, and can recognize situations where those are going to get you into trouble. And you need to switch gears. You need to go do something. You need to find somebody else who can solve that problem, who has those strengths. And that really effective leaders are just really good at doing that. They're, they're good at recognizing the situations where they're, they're the best, where they can play the best. And they're really good at recognizing situations where their way of doing things is wrong or, or not the most effective. And to me, again, like I said, at first I was really dismayed. I came away feeling really pretty excited about this because what it means is that leadership training and leadership effectiveness really begins with understanding yourself, understanding your own strengths and, and your, own, your own weaknesses. And so the idea there would be that personality and some of the other things like values that we focus on, it's the idea of not sort of necessarily having the perfect mold, but it starts with self-awareness. I need to know my strengths and I need to know what my risks are, and know when to flex out of it. You know, it, it, it reminds me from my perspective, I'm a very sort of big picture person. I'm open to new ideas. And when I was much younger, if you put a process in front of me, I, I would want to jump out the window. But as I've become older, I've realized that there's a time and a place for process. And I almost have to turn off my natural inclinations in those moments so it's very funny. I have like zero diligence in me, but there are these moments where I become the most process focused person in the company. Um, yeah. And it's just, yeah, it, it, I, you may have squared the circle for me on, uh, on some of my own personality qualities there because I've always been baffled by it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there's like really clear examples of like, you know, a leader who who's um, uh, like, let's say, very ambitious, very hard driving, very results oriented, uh, we would say low on interpersonal sensitivity. So they don't, they, you know, they don't put their f people's feelings first. They're really focused on results and getting things done and, 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 and taking action and making things happen. These people can be really effective in a lot of situations. There's a lot of situations where we need to focus on the results and we need to say, hey, look, I don't, I don't care whose feelings get hurt on this. Uh, we, we need to get things done, right? I, I, for example, taking over a company that's failing, you probably are going to have to do layoffs. And, and having a leader who's feeling very comfortable with that is, is pretty good. But the problem is that you can't solve every problem by being tough, <laughs> right? That sometimes a problem comes up and you need to be sensitive. You need to go, oh, wait a minute. There's people's lives on the line here and I have to actually be sensitive to their needs. And so... Uh, Again, there's there's certain situations where that lead that sort of natural leadership style of being ambitious and tough and strong is really um, effective. But there's other situations where that's totally disastrous. And and the really good leaders, you can either be naturally tough and naturally uh, strong and naturally forceful, or you can be the opposite. It doesn't matter. What matters is recognizing when to play to your strengths and recognizing when you need to, to, to deviate from your strengths. Yeah, and a great recent example of that for me is um, 
you know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Meta's uh, founder, who's obviously very driven and very all sorts of other things, they had to do large layoffs, but he got unbelievable credit for the stat from the staff for it because at one point where he was announcing it to a group of people, some of whom who were going to be laid off, instead of just sort of saying it and giving the speech about what we have to do about the future, which he did do, he waited in the crowd and hung out with the people and talked to them one-on-one. Um, and mm. so he was definitely flexing out of everything that we've seen as his style. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I see what you're saying about leadership, but is there sort of a model out there for teams? You know, is there are there qualities that relate to personality, you know, to build build the most effective team itself? Yeah, sure, for for sure. So we've done quite a bit of research recently on team effectiveness. We did we did a really cool project where some members of my staff basically reviewed every single piece of literature. This is all the academic literature. This is also every single uh, team performance or team effectiveness model created by consulting firms. Right, we gathered all of this information together, and gosh, I think we found. I'm trying to remember how many it was. It was like I think more than 300 terms that were related to, uh, okay, I guess it was close to 200. Yeah, it was about nearly 200 terms related to team effectiveness. If you like, look at all these models and everything that everybody said, this is what high-performing teams do, there's nearly 200 things that researchers have listed related to team effectiveness. Like, holy cow, that, that's a whole lot of things. But as you might imagine, some of those things like are kind of the same thing. They kind of overlap. They're kind of pretty similar to each other. So what we actually did was we took all these terms, we, we physically wrote them down on three by five index cards, we wrote down their definition given by the researchers at the consulting firm. And then we looked at all these terms and we just sort of combined them. We said, wait a minute, these are the same thing, these are the same things, right? And so we sort of clustered these terms together into, into groups. And we basically, after doing all of that, we identified 27 sort of factors that are really you know tightly related. There really isn't any more than that. That's sort of the, the uh, highest level uh, that, that you can imagine, or well, I guess another way of saying it's the lowest level that you can imagine. There's 27 things that are related to leadership effectiveness, but they really fall into five uh, higher order themes. And and those are the themes that, that we, we've started talking with folks about. And I know, Jason, you've been doing some work with your clients around these themes as well. And, and the first one is trust, is building trust. That's really important for uh, highly effective teams. Every effective team says, you know, that they trust, that they trust each other, they trust their leaders. Of course, the, the funny thing about trust is you can't just say, hey, go trust yourselves you know, more. <laughs> trust each other more. Like, you know, trust is sort of this emergent property from, from having uh, a lot of time together, from having positive experiences together, from putting each other in situations where you're counting on the other person to get the job done and they deliver on those results, right? So trust is sort of this thing that emerges and is earned over time. You can't just tell teams to have more trust. But there are things that you can sort of tell teams to, to, to do more of. So one of those, uh, the other themes that we identified was team norms. And so this means uh, having the right people on the team. This means having the right uh, strategies for communication. How do we talk to each other? How do we communicate with each other? This also means having the right sort of operational norms. Who makes what decisions? How are those decisions made? Right, Having those policies in place and, and setting up those Th those kinds of ways of interacting is really important. And so this is something that you can do with teams. You can say, hey, look, you need to have, you know, a way of doing this that everybody agrees on that this is how we do it. This is how things work on our team. And that makes for much more effective teams. The, the third theme that we've identified was mission alignment. So 
everybody needs to know what the goal is. Uh, would you be surprised how often people are on these teams or maybe you wouldn't be, maybe you've been on a team where you're like, I don't even know why we're still meeting every week. What is our goal? <laughs> yes. Uh, right. So, um, so it's really important that everybody understands what the goal is. And at the same time, everybody agrees that that is the goal we should be working towards. Right. So sometimes you can go, yeah, well, that's the goal we're working towards, but I don't really agree with that. Well, that's mission misalignment, right? You need to have everybody agreeing that this is the right goal. And, and we all know what that is. And so at the same time, we kind of have to know what our roles are in, in getting us towards that mission. The, the, the fourth theme that we identified is, is having a results focus. That is, you know, holding each other accountable, wanting to get the job done. And, and again, being a focused on, on achieving the, those kinds of outcomes. Getting feedback on how we're doing is, is really important as well. And of course, all the stuff you see around goal setting, objective setting, right? There's a lot of people who work with teams and you know, smart goals and all of those kinds of things. That all fits into this sort of results-focused theme as well. And the final theme that we found with really high-performing teams, and this is particularly at the executive level, is having strategic adaptability. And that is being future-focused, future-oriented, at the executive level, really avoiding tactical problems, uh, being open-minded, being curious, willing to innovate, willing to learn, willing to try things that might not work, but more importantly, having the agility to shift rapidly, to, to move between, to say, hey, this was a bad idea, let's stop, let's go on to the next thing. Teams that could do that uh, seem, seem to be more effective. So those are really the five things I'll just summarize really briefly. So the first one is trust. The second one is, is norms or, or team norms. The third one is mission alignment. The fourth one is results focus. And the fifth one is strategic adaptability. And of course, much of this is driven by the leader and the leader's personality and their own biases drive the kinds of things that they go for, right? So if you're like, let's just look at, we were talking about Twitter before we, we started recording here. I think it's a very good example of strategic adaptability with Elon Musk in charge. I mean, that's one of his clear strengths. But there's a whole bunch of other things that are not really good strengths for him. For example, interpersonal norms, even operational norms are sometimes not that clear <laughs> under his leadership, right? So the leader's personality drives a whole lot of these things. And again, being more effective as a team, being more effective as a leader requires knowing which things are your strengths and which things are your weaknesses. Yeah. And that makes complete sense to me. You know, you look at some of the really great teams, you know, I think of companies like um, Red Hat or other companies that have really innovated over time, like an IBM that's been around for a ridiculous amount of time. And a lot of what you see is even the ability to adapt, the ability to change, um, the ability to align around a mission or even align around a new mission. And then obviously trust is a, is a super important part of it. But, you know, in thinking about what you were saying about leaders, the strongest leaders being those who are able to adapt um, mm -hmm. and those who are able to sort of shift and build trust, I sort of, it, it reminds me of, you know, people who don't fit that mold, like Steve Jobs, for example, you know, who mm -hmm. also reminds me of Jack Nicholson. You know, Jack Nicholson goes in and doesn't matter what the role is, he plays Jack Nicholson. And, and I sort of feel like Jobs is a bit, a bit similar. I was reading his biography recently, the Walter Isaacson book. And, you know, there's no question to me that he was a really brilliant innovator. He had a real eye for the consumer market, you know, real perfectionist about things. 
but he didn't seem to be particularly flexible and able to, you know, adapt his personal style. And, you know, it's, he was known as a remarkably difficult person to work with. People criticize him for having minimal leadership skills. Is there like something unique about people like Jobs who are able to break the mold or are we looking at them maybe in the wrong way? Maybe they do fit within that mold. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. And that one is that we and we have a lot of data on entrepreneurs at Hogan, and, and they look pretty different from your typical C-suite executive, I think, for a couple of reasons. But one of those is being that they really do excel at identifying problems and the things that need to be solved and things that need to be fixed. And they're really, really good at breaking things that need to be broken, right? So when they go, okay, this needs to be disrupted, this needs to be changed entrepreneurs are really, really good at that. And that makes that's part of what makes them so uh, creative, so makes them so innovative. It's also what drives their, well, the ability to, ha- to have just new ideas and, and in some respects drives their success because, I mean, you know, with Steve Jobs at Apple, that's what it was really all about, was about the ideas. And the ideas were enough to make Apple successful while Steve Jobs was the CEO. Was he an effective leader? I think everybody would say no. He wasn't a particularly effective leader. He got away with some very bad leadership qualities because the ideas were just so good. And that's part of what we we refer to as the sort of Apple paradox. Like, well, how can you say all these things about leadership if you've got you know the, some of the most successful companies in the world, Steve Jobs and uh, with, with Apple, uh, Jeff Bezos, who hasn't been seen as particularly uh, <laughs> uh, interpersonally skilled as a leader at, at Amazon and, and Elon Musk as, as another example, right? So uh, how can that be the case? And, 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 and our point here is that, well, first of all, there, there's a difference between business success and, and, and leadership effectiveness, right? So there's no question that these businesses are highly successful, they're, they're right? They're, there's no doubt about that. Yep. And part of business success is just, in some cases, is just about having really good ideas and being right about those ideas. I've talked before about Elon Musk being right about the 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 handles on the Tesla. Apparently, he was an unbelievably crazy micromanager at Tesla very early on, insisting that the handles do the way that they do, where they're like sort of flat against the car. And when you put your hand near it, the handle kind of pops out. Well, these things don't make the car functionally better at all. And the engineers, they said they drove him crazy because he insisted on these electronic handles that delayed production. It was a real pain. But guess what? I think he was right about that, right? Because, man, that's something that really makes the Tesla different. It makes the Tesla stand out. When you see one go by, you go, oh, I know that's a Tesla because look at the look at the handle, right? So the, these leaders, they tend to be right about the ideas, but I don't think they're, they're particularly effective a, as leaders. If you have really good ideas, it can cover up a lot of, of leadership flaws. In our work with entrepreneurs, we find that most entrepreneurs who, who are really successful uh, have, have an exit strategy. Mm. Uh, they, they do have a plan to, to get out of the leadership role relatively quickly. And we see that with, with Apple, right? So, uh, of course, they did have to bring Steve Jobs back for a while. But even since since then, I mean, Tim Cook is, I mean, this is like, uh, I think Warren Buffett's called it the most, uh, uh, the, the best run company he's ever seen. Yeah. And, right. And that's, you know, that's with Tim Cook in charge. So who I think comes across to most as a much more effective leader than, than Steve Jobs. And, and, you know, it's interesting in thinking about that, you know, part of the reason why they brought 
Steve Jobs back was because Apple was really struggling and it needed innovation. So it needed mm -hmm. those ideas again. And then as the company sort of matured and there's less of a focus on innovation, Tim Cook ends up being, you know, that more of the model of the effective leader. And maybe I'm wondering whether what we're missing is that when we're looking at leadership development, we always, we should always be looking or looking at leadership. We should be looking at con uh, the context, you know, what makes the most sense for the, mm -hmm. the context that people are in. But one of the things that also struck me about what you were saying when you were talking about what makes teams effective is, is that idea, you know, we exist in teams because, you know, we're exponentially able to accomplish more as a group than are, we are as a bunch of individuals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, I like to joke, we would all have been eaten by now. But, you know, dozens of times a year, someone comes to me and they tell me they want to, you know, use an assessment like the Myers-Briggs type indicator or the DISC, which is another popular assessment. And they want to focus on team cohesion, you know, and I find that those exact same leaders are coming to me two years later to do the exact same thing again. Um, is there any advice you'd have for leaders around building what it really takes to build an effective team? Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting point that you make about team cohesion because there, there's a lot of research on teams. And unfortunately, most of that research is on team cohesion, which is really just about how well do we like each other? How well do we get along? And unfortunately, how well the team likes each other and gets along isn't necessarily related to team successes or being effective, getting tasks done, achieving missions, achieving goals. In fact, many uh, highly effective teams in terms of achieving goals and achieving outcomes would tell you that but their team meetings are pretty hostile. They, they, in many cases, don't really like each other that much. Now, of course, it can't be overtly hostile in such a way that, that, it, that it's dysfunctional. But, uh, but in fact, the cohesion is just not really that related to effectiveness. So when, when people come and say, Hey, uh, you know, I want to use you know, these assessments so we can work on, uh, you know, learning about each other better and becoming more cohesive as a team, uh, that's really not necessarily that constructive in terms of making the team, uh, uh more effective. In fact, uh, there's a whole bunch of research on diversity and team diversity. And of course, uh, as you might imagine, diversity is actually associated with, um, with team performance in part, because in many cases, have you ever done a quiz bowl or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bar trivia night <laughs> where they ask a question and your team is against some other teams, you only need one person on the team to know the right answer. To, to be really effective. And often that means having, right, having a bunch of physicists on your team, right? The IQ, uh, you might have the highest IQ in the bar, but you, you may not, you may not win the quiz bowl because your it's expertise is physics. narrow. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so you want to have a diversity of expertise and a diversity of experiences. And so that really seems to actually be associated with more effective teams. But what it's actually negatively related to is, at least initially, is team cohesion, right? So people who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences often don't cohere right away because they don't necessarily have the same culture and the same backgrounds that they're coming from. Um, and so, uh, or, or the same, even the same set of values that they're bringing to the team. And so the, the cohesion can often be low on those teams. But what we see over time is that the teams end up making better decisions, being more effective. So... Um, so that's part of it. The other part is, is I, I think you really have to avoid 
uh, just the focusing on your strengths kind of approach to to teamwork. You you know, it, it is helpful to understand who else is on the team and what what you know um, what their strengths are. But you also want to know what you know what their weaknesses are. What are the things that they need to work on, and, and they need to know, right? Everybody kind of needs to know how do we interact with each other. And the only way you can get that is with much fuller and much more deeper uh, assessment experience than than rather just something that's sort of like a, a sort of a team building exercise, which which you, which you often hear of. Um, you really need a much deeper uh, understanding of who's on the team, what are their strengths, what are the weaknesses, what what are we good at. What are we missing as a team? What what else do we need to round us out to make us more effective? And I think you just need a much deeper assessment to do that. It makes sense what you're saying. It makes me wonder whether what it's really about is not necessarily being cohesive as a team, but but about being fulfilled, being fulfilled through effectiveness, uh-huh. through the impact that's aligned with your values. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I give I can give a personal example. I, I the high school baseball team that I played on, we won the state title in Illinois in, in two thousand two. Dating myself, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, not as old as me. So, I mean, <laughs> as as adults, we sort of uh, you know get along with each other, and we still like each other because of the experiences we had together. But we, um, I. I you know, some of us hung out together some of the time, but we didn't all hang out together all of the time. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say we liked all of it. You know, we all we just got along great and we were always. In fact, there were a lot of conflicts between players on the team. And a lot of that conflict was around performance. It was about holding each other accountable for doing our jobs and, and for being successful. And that often isn't cohesive. It often doesn't build cohesion to get on somebody and say, hey, man, you're not pulling your weight. Uh, but I think it's really necessary if you want to be effective. And of course, again, that can go too far, right? You can you can have somebody who's just constantly uh, hounding someone to the point that it's, it becomes harassment. That also will lead to team ineffectiveness, right? So, so you have to strike that balance. But the point here is that it's not all about cohesion. Yeah. And it's an interesting point. You know, when I'm thinking over my career as a leader, you know, I've gotten along with a lot of the people who've reported to me. There have been some people that I have totally not gotten along with, but they were effective. They, mm-hmm. they drove me nuts on a personal level, but they were effective. And one of the things that I say to people, whether you get along with me or not, you know, the one job you have is to tell me when I'm wrong. Right. Like the thing that I value most is when that conflict comes in and uh, people are able to help me um, help me end up uh, on the on the right course. And it, it sort of sounds like from what you were what you're saying collectively, there might be a benefit for us to go back to a model where the the group picks the picks the leader and that the leader builds self-awareness and drives the group to be more effective over the long run instead of some uh, short place. I think if we're like hunting on the savannah, right? Like the leader shouldn't be directing our team to go, you know, kill the giant animal that's going to sort of, uh, you know, that he's going to get the most out of, but to, to play it smart and play it safe um, to, uh, to get what's going to help the, um, the entire team. So I, I was just wondering as we're closing, if they're collectively just sort of any lessons you can think of uh, related to leadership that um, 
that that if there are any important pieces you think leaders should know today to sort of shift their approach and shift the approach of how they lead their teams? Well, I, th- I think that is the, the biggest um, difficulty in, in leadership selection is you want someone who is particularly motivated to help the team win, someone who is only focused on the team's success, not on their own individual success. And that is so difficult to disentangle, right? Because, you know, the charming charismatics, they know, they know the right things to say, they know, you know, how to put on an act, how to perform in a way that makes you think that's what you're getting. And many cases, what they're after is their own success, their own glory, their own results, their own story, their own accolades. And it's just so difficult to disentangle that. I can think that this is, again, to me, is a real advantage of a personality assessment is because you can, you can much better identify, right, which, which kind of leader you're getting in those cases. But, but I think the, the real big advice I would give to people who are currently leading or leaders or looking to become a leader. Maybe there's people listening to this podcast who are thinking, ah, oh, geez, you know, you know, I'm not very charming. You know, I, I'm not very good uh, in, in sort of public speaking scenario. So I, I can't be I can't be a good leader. I think the research is becoming clear and clear that actually anyone can be a more effective leader. So whether you're in a leadership role now or whether you aspire to be in one or even if you're not even thinking about being in one. You don't think you have the skills to be one. Anyone can be an effective leader, but it really starts with understanding what your strengths are and, and what your weaknesses are and how to, how to adapt to particular circumstances, how in a certain circumstance you need to go against the grain, go against your natural instincts and take a different approach to, to solve the problem. And being able to do that seems to be the real key to leadership effectiveness, not so much, uh, being good in public or, or being strategic or, or, or being a people person. None of those things seem to be, oh, this is the way to be an effective leader. The way to be an effective leader is to recognize when you need to be a people person, when you need to be strategic and, and uh, adapting between there. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. I think that's an awesome point to end on. I, and I think that's really great advice for all of our listeners, for uh, both the people who are leaders, who are aspiring to be leaders, or even for the people who are, you know, looking for that right leader for for them. So this has been a great interview, and uh, we're looking forward to bringing you back at some point to to talk about some other topics that uh that impact psychology in the workplace. And well, I just want to say the only thing I'll say here is thanks so much, Jace, for having me on here. This has been awesome. Really enjoyed chatting with you. I felt like I talked way too much, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, <laughs> no one enjoyed the conversation, and, and I'm totally happy to come back uh, on some other time in the future. Absolutely, thank you, Ryan. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Podcast. We'll see you for our next episode. <laughs>